Today's show is sponsored by Interpop and the Sun Exchange. So my hope and my assumption is that if the United States does embrace a more open, dynamic financial system that's reliant on a multitude of options, we will continue to maintain a qualitative edge when it comes to our ability to compete. We will need to be very smart in how we go about doing that, and we will have to recognize that we are losing some of the built-in advantages that we have historically enjoyed when it comes to our ability to compete with centralized systems. I think crypto enthusiasts perhaps accept too quickly. The power of crypto is just irresistible, and everyone has to go along. If they don't go along, they lose out in the end. And I find that a, a bit naive. The model I have in mind is more of a transformation from within, sort of a butterfly that comes out of a chrysalis. And so traditional finance is going to be involved in the process, whether you like it or not. And perhaps the end result is going to be a kind of a synthesis between the crypto innovators and some of the traditional finance people. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. As you've heard on this show, there are a lot of fun aspects to reimagining money. Money as a meme, the crypto subculture and its vernacular, the potential for new forms of art and expression, and beyond. At the same time, as digital currencies become more mainstream and catch the attention of governments, they become part of a bigger, more serious global conversation about sovereignty, hegemony, and not to be dramatic, a potential new world order. Politics 101 terms aside, geopolitics is a topic that seems inextricably tied to digital currencies. Over the past year in particular, we've heard a whole host of these questions like, how will the digital yuan fit into the Belt and Road Initiative and what does it mean for the current global reserve currency, the dollar? What has dollarization meant for emerging economies, and is innovation of currency and payments a potential hedge against it? What are the right design choices for CBDCs, and how are they influenced by governance models around the world? And what happens when countries are no longer the only players issuing currencies? What do digital currencies mean for traditional geopolitical levers like sanctions? The point is that money and power go hand in hand, and governments are well aware of that reality. For the past 75 years, the global economy has been defined by the dominance of the dollar, a reality that's given the U.S. enormous leverage, affording Washington significant non-military means of influencing other states' actions. This has meant that the surveillance system that defines anti-money laundering and other regulations we've talked about on the show are usually shaped by U.S. interests. So now that money itself is changing, it's imperative that we view these technological shifts in terms of how they might play out in geopolitical spheres. It already seems clear that states like Iran, with potential help from China, are planning potentially to use digital currencies to bypass the existing US-centric international payment systems dominated by SWIFT. This is one reason why many push for coordinated action around the development and regulation of this technology. But while there's been some international cooperation around guidance for crypto and stablecoins in particular, for the most part, governments are still going their own way, raising this prospect of an arms race to create more efficient financial rails. Now today, 
We're going to go deep on the topic of money and power, joined by two individuals who spend a great deal of their significant intellectual capacity thinking, writing, and speaking about these big picture topics. First, we'll be joined by Tomeka Tilleman, the executive director of the Digital Impact and Governance Initiative, known as Digi, at New America. He works in collaboration with the Rockefeller Foundation, the World Bank, MIT, and governments around the world to develop a new generation of open source technology platforms to power the public sector. Prior to New America, Tomeka was a senior advisor to two secretaries of state and was on the staff of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee working with Joe Biden, John Kerry, and Barack Obama. Bruno Masai is a non-resident senior fellow at the Hudson Institute and a senior advisor at Flint Global in London. He was the Portuguese Europe minister from 2013 to 2015 and is the author of three books, History Has Begun, The Birth of a New America, Belt and Road to Chinese New World Order, and Dawn of Eurasia on the Trail of the New World Order. Before we speak to our distinguished guests, welcome my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi, Sheila. How are you? I'm doing okay. You know, we've had quite a week yet again. Uh, crypto time, which is triple, I don't know, 10x. What is, what's the multiplier on real time? It's 10x <laughs> at least. 10x is the base layer for sure. At a minimum. Yeah. So, I mean, just lately, you know, we, we've been seeing, as usual, crypto Twitter gets obsessed with something, you know, for an hour, goes on to the next thing. But for at least an hour over the most of the last couple of days, there was this video that surfaced of an interview that the Azerbaijan president, uh, Aliyev, did with the BBC reporter. I think this was from last winter-ish, maybe November, December, something like that. And, and in it, you know, the BBC reporter tries to basically call out uh, Aliyev and say, you know, there's no media freedom in Azerbaijan and there's like no free press and all this kind of thing. And he responds by saying, well, you're a hypocrite because you're with BBC and look, you're funded by a government that is basically uh, is imprisoned, essentially, you know, uh, Assange. And so so the fact that you are trying to go after somebody who was trying to bring more honesty, you know, to the media, et cetera, how dare you? And so I think it's this interesting point that, what's sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. And it was a really interesting point, you know, tended to the point we talked about Alex Gladstein a couple of weeks ago or a couple episodes ago, when is crypto being used by an oppressive regime and what is actually being used by the resistance? And in some cases, both at the exact same time. So similarly, there's tools here, you know, where you could see them used by an authoritarian state, but they're also sometimes used by those who at least are self-proclaimed freedom fighters uh, for releasing of information, right? And so it becomes this really interesting dynamic. Like, these tools to some extent are somewhat neutral and it's really the deployer of the tool that determines what is the outcome of what happens when these tools are used. Well, yeah, not only that, but it's also, it's in the eye of the beholder as well as to whether that usage, you know, is somehow morally acceptable or not. You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter type of concept. I think it gets interesting when you see a lot of the debate around crypto where this is very little nuance, right? There's an appeal to the assumption that we all know what is good and bad in this stuff. And often it is, it would seem to me to be clear as day, but in often cases, it depends on where you're coming from. And money has been this thing that's been neutral for so long. It's not entirely true. We've talked a lot about the surveillance state and how it exists in the old traditional financial system. But for the most part, money is just a tool and a vehicle that is apolitical. And here it is being constantly reinserted into, you know, a, a political context, which I think is, is an important point here. Yeah. Well, people in the crypto ecosystem tend to be, you know, have violent opinions about this. You know, crypto is the tool of liberation and it's going to ensure that we are not bound by uh, state-backed money and that we're not beholden to any sort of government or centralized institution in order to engage in transactions or, you know, whatever it is. There tend to be very strong opinions about this. Uh, and what I think is sometimes missed is that, well, yes, you know, those same tools can, again, also be used uh, to oppress. It is naive to think that they're not also equally available to those who might use them for different kinds of ends. And so, Tobika, I'd love to turn to you. You've spent quite a bit of time 
working with and for many governments. And I'd love for you to kind of give us an almost an overview. What are the myriad ways that money is used as a tool of the state? You know, is this effective as a strategy? How common and prevalent is this in terms of being used explicitly as something that is uh, designed to create incentives or lead to certain kinds of behavior, you know, other kinds of mechanisms? Well, it's a very broad question, Sheila. Wonderful to be with you and, and Michael and Bruno. Um, I think to, to kick it off, it's important to recognize that states need to use money first and foremost the same way we all need to use money uh, as a mechanism for exchanging goods and services. At the moment, especially in the United States, we're not doing so well in that regard. If you look, for example, at the recent CARES Act uh, that was passed last year as a, a mechanism for providing uh, support to families in the wake of the pandemic, the estimates right now are that about $200 billion of the resources associated with the CARES Act were actually siphoned off by cyber criminals and other bad actors uh, before they met their intended destination. Even by Washington standards, that is an enormous amount of money, just an astonishing amount of money. So the first and perhaps most basic use of resources by government is to purchase what they need and, and to put resources in the hands of those that they're trying to support. And that's an area where, you know, certainly in the United States, we need some help and could do a lot better than we're currently doing. You also see a lot of uh, utilization of the financial system as a mechanism for preserving law and order. And this becomes much more controversial depending on the government that is doing the enforcement. In democracies where you have popular oversight of uh, elected officials and judicial processes, hopefully you've got some good checks and balances in place to ensure that if law enforcement is looking into financial transactions, they're doing so in accordance with the rule of law and they're doing so uh, in accordance with judicial review. That is certainly not the case in authoritarian governments, where bad actors tend to operate with a much freer hand. There are, most of us would agree, some pretty legitimate state interests in observing financial transactions that, for example, uh, would contribute to the trafficking of children. There, there's some really bad things that occur in conjunction with any type of money that government has a, a pretty reasonable role in trying to curtail. Uh, but you also see increasingly particularly authoritarian governments, using their control of financial infrastructure as a mechanism for punishing those that disagree with them, for deplatforming actors that may speak out in, in the face of abuses. And this opens up a much broader discussion about the legitimate role of the state in exerting oversight and influence over financial systems. And that debate is uh, certainly well-grounded uh, in the crypto community and, and something that goes back to the earliest days of the development of digital assets and digital currencies. Meet Interpop, a super team redefining the future of NFTs and fandom. From comics and trading card games to digital collectibles and everything in between, they are building the architecture of an entirely new landscape of fandom using technology built on the Tezos blockchain to drive their vision. Visit hellointerpop.io to learn more. That's hellointerpop.io to learn more. With the Sun Exchange, you can easily earn Bitcoin while making a positive impact. Visit thesunexchange.com slash coindesk to buy solar cells and automatically lease them to power businesses, schools, and other organizations in sunny emerging markets. You'll earn Bitcoin for 20 years from the clean energy you generate while offsetting your carbon footprint. Get a free solar cell with your first purchase at 
thesunexchange.com slash Coindesk. That's thesunexchange.com slash Coindesk. Bruno, I want to take this to another level. I mean, flip the script a little bit on what Tamika was just saying and think about the most powerful government in the world and its use of the financial system for its ends politically. You know, we talk a lot on this show about the current regulatory regime and how there is a, a global institution around money laundering rules and things like that, but it is the power of the United States with the dollar's centrality to that, that ultimately gives the United States greater power than everybody else in terms of this surveillance and it, in terms of authoritarian regimes and its enemies, it's able to use this as a means to impose sanctions, for example, because ultimately all roads have to lead back through New York. The dollar flows through here and that gives the United States unbridled power in many respects to use this gatekeeping power. But we're at a moment where a lot of people think that this era may be coming to an end, right? There's this conversation around the 75-year debt cycle. Some people are focused on like Ray Dalio, who's going to be on a consensus, uh, our event in a couple of weeks' time. A lot of focus on China and you yourself have written significantly about China's rise. And of course, they're exploring new forms of money, such as the digital yuan. But at the same time, you have a rather bright view of this may be the next era for American expansion and American growth. Where does this sit? What is the future of the dollar in your mind in the context of this idea of it as a tool of statecraft? And how does it play out? Uh, very interesting times, revolutionary times, one could say. A lot of things happening at the same time. We have China, of course, but we also have potentially the euro could finally become a significant reserve currency. And there are some movements uh, in Brussels trying to make that happen. The dollar certainly cannot continue to be what it was. You simply look at the figures, the role of US in global trade, even its role as a reserve currency has been uh, consistently been reduced in recent years. And now you hear almost everyday voices calling attention to the possibility of paradigm shift here. You also hear the usual voices saying this has been repeated uh, over the years and over the decades and it never happens. But the question for someone historically minded is nothing ever happens until it does. And we may be approaching uh, an important moment. Uh, and then, of course, we have the whole discussion about crypto broadly understood about decentralized networks. And I think at the very least, competition between the US and China will happen within a context where decentralized networks are becoming more and more important. So it's very exciting. How do we read Bitcoin and crypto in general in the context of geopolitical competition? Is it a tool of Chinese power, as Peter Thiel famously argued very recently? Uh, is it actually a tool by which uh, America could preserve its power, but without relying so much on the dollar? But I think crypto would give America some advantages that it wouldn't give China. Or is it actually something that is destined in time? I don't think it will be as quick as some of the proponents think. In time could help us actually overcome the whole paradigm of the nation state. So I wrote an article a few months ago arguing that perhaps we're getting distracted with the competition between China and the US. Perhaps what is happening in our time is actually the emergence of something fundamentally different from the nation state, as different from the nation state as, as the nation state was different from the tribe. So very interesting. And, and obviously, these uh, few months of the Biden presidency, I'm starting to think that as revolutionary as the Trump presidency was for politics and how we think about politics and American politics, what's happening with the Biden presidency is, though, 
even politics has become more routine and more boring. Finance has become, in a way, crazy. This has been the the year of uh, NFTs, the year of GameStop, the other year of Doge, and the year of many other things that look as crazy as Trump did in his day. We talk a lot about those sorts of developments and in the context of the grand conversation that this podcast is all about, right? Money being reimagined and it's being reimagined by all of these forces. It's very hard to predict because it's really a much more of a bottom-up concept right now. And it's, it's fascinating stuff. But to Mike, I struck by something Bruno just said, what is the future of crypto? And again, to that point, we don't know exactly, but the idea that it actually could be a tool for the United States, the classic paradigm, the way we tend to think about this is without the dollar, the US is nothing. I tend to subscribe to the idea that in some respects, if the US were to openly embrace open permissionless systems, especially in the world of money, it would actually be an extension of American values of open systems rather than what is ultimately a very closed and not exactly authoritarian, but certainly much more of a restrictive state than, than that model would be. So I know you've got strong views on open societies and why they matter. Do you share that perspective? And if not, why? And where do you see it all going? Well, I think there's certainly an opportunity here. And to build on Bruno's very keen insight, if you look at the post-World War II universe in which the Bretton Woods II institutions were created, Virtually every problem worth solving at that time in, on the planet could be addressed by government. And you fast forward to where we are today, there is hardly a big problem on the planet worth solving that can be addressed by government alone. Government still plays an important role. We, we shouldn't discount uh, the significance of government in addressing these challenges. But government is now one of a multitude of actors that need to be at the table if we're going to address big global challenges. And to put that in the context of the global financial system, the reason the United States succeeded in the 20th century is because decentralized decision-making architecture was fundamentally more efficient at achieving optimal outcomes than the centralized systems that the United States was competing against. So I spent a lot of time in, in Central and Eastern Europe when I was very young, even before the collapse of the Soviet bloc, those countries could not compete with the United States. We were just much, much better at making decisions and Western European nations that uh, employed similar decentralized uh, frameworks for decision-making and organizing their societies were much better at making decisions. There is a big question, and I'm certainly not the first person to raise this question, that is being thrust to the forefront uh, of the global conversation right now, which is whether that paradigm will continue as big data and AI fundamentally shift the ability of government and centralized actors to engage in decision-making in ways that weren't possible previously. So my hope and my assumption is that if the United States does embrace a more open, dynamic financial system that's reliant on a multitude of options, we will continue to maintain a qualitative edge when it comes to our ability to compete. We will need to be very smart in how we go about doing that, and we will have to recognize that we are losing some of the built-in advantages that we have historically enjoyed when it comes to our ability to compete with centralized systems. I'd love to hear your response to that and your thoughts. No, absolutely. I think that is the way. Uh, obviously, we're all, and we have to admit that, a bit confused in the sense that we still don't have clear ideas how to think about this. But a, a couple of points um, on what we just heard. So I think... Sometimes we forget that the dollar status as a reserve currency, it comes with costs. 
particularly for, for the U.S. taxpayer and, and for the U.S. citizen. There's a recent book by Michael Pattis and Matthew Klein, uh, Trade Wars Are Class Wars, where they make the argument, I think a bit exaggerated, but they make the argument that actually the U.S. does not benefit from the dollar status as a reserve currency. Uh, you end up having to run a current account deficit, um, probably a ballooning current account deficit. It sort of voids your middle class. The deindustrialization of, of the American heartland is a direct result of that. The oversized role of finance and the financial industry in American society and American politics, these are all consequences of the dollar status as a reserve currency. And therefore, it's worthwhile thinking about a better solution of a superior solution where some of the advantages can be preserved without having to rely on what is essentially a dysfunctional system in many respects and dysfunctional for global trade as well. Many of the dysfunctions of global trade today come from that role of, of a single currency being the reserve currency while the country that issues that currency is also a player in, in global trade. So this is not a perfect system and everyone knows that. And we have to think whether that can, can be changed. Bitcoin, and I know this is a very polemical issue. Uh, the more I learn about the crypto space, the more I realize that. We have to think whether Bitcoin is the end of the story or just the beginning. It's now become relatively common to compare Bitcoin to AOL, to the beginnings of the internet. Uh, and I've become more and more convinced that, uh, well, the risk with crypto is not so much with the crypto space as a whole, but each individual solution may well be surpassed by other solutions. And obviously now we're talking seriously about whether there will be a flipping and whether Ethereum will have a, a higher market cap than Bitcoin and something else can appear in the future. So let's keep the doors of perception open. That's my essential point. Uh, we're at the very beginning. Let's not close possibilities before we've even been able to think about them seriously and, and deeply. It's interesting because there's definitely this shift or movement, realization that there's a lot of gatekeeping that's happening by government around some of these pegs and things like this. There's also, of course, the gatekeeping that happens from Wall Street and similarly yeah. big finance, let's call it, right? And so how we kind of move forward is, of course, a big challenge. There's a tremendous amount of incumbent interest, and, and I'll focus for this, this next little bit on uh, Wall Street, specifically even just finance. There is not a lot of desire to give up those gatekeeping powers, right, to say the least. What is your view? Is that going to be something that would need to happen almost by just sheer tsunami-like momentum? Or do you feel that there is a world in which there's enough openness on the part of, let's call it big finance, uh, to these new models, these new decentralized kinds of models, protocols, the technology, I mean, all of it, really? How do you see that playing out? I think there's different stories, different possible stories. Uh, so in one story, which I think crypto enthusiasts perhaps accept too quickly, the power of crypto is just irresistible and everyone has to go along. If they don't go along, they lose out in the end. And I find that a, a bit naive. The model I have in mind is more of a transformation from within, sort of a butterfly that comes out of a chrysalis. And so traditional finance is going to be involved in the process, whether you like it or not. And perhaps in the end, the end result is going to be a kind of a synthesis between the crypto innovators and some of the traditional finance people, uh, who, by the way, are now moving into crypto themselves and bringing some of the old ideas along. Um, the purity of crypto is probably not going to be preserved. 
But in the end, that may be the only way to move forward uh, and may be the only way to move forward without having um, something of a civil war, because that is also possible. One can imagine a scenario where traditional finance, but also state structures will just try to root the whole crypto space entirely. Uh, and then there would be resistance of different kinds. Uh, not a good outcome in the end. Uh, and so I think the model of a, of a grand bargain or some kind of compromise or a synthesis between these different forces is the model that I think is most likely and probably also the, the superior outcome here. But I think people in the crypto space are always going to be concerned that the project is going to be betrayed as more and more people from traditional finance come in. Uh, and I think that's going to be the story in the next few years. All right. That's a great trigger for me there because um, I'm always fascinated by the idea that we are not just moving to a new state of hegemony, that there is going to be, there's always going to be some big powerful force in the world, whether it's the United States or it's Amazon or some other, you know, forces. It's just the nature of how the ruthless law of capitalism, I suppose, is to speak of. However, something that's so enticing about this crypto environment, it's analogous in some respects as well to the emergence of the internet and the fact that suddenly all, anybody could be empowered to speak or to create a website. Now you're empowered to create money to create new financial arrangements and everything else. And that's always going to be there. So to micro, I'd like to get your thoughts on, even if we accept the synthesis type of direction that Bruno is talking about here, and that ultimately these powers that be play a, a role in shaping what the kind of crypto future would be. The fact that as an individual, I'm going to have greater choice over where I want to put my money and presumably in ways that governments actually can't stop, even if they are only a small portion of the global economy, that in itself at the edges, is it not, is a game changer in how power itself plays out in the global economy. So I just want to get your thoughts on that. Therefore, how important is the notion of choice over money, choice over our currency going to be in whatever shape the new world order takes? Those are a couple of great questions, uh, Michael. You know, first, I would say, yes, we are seeing some very significant movements, transfers of power in the way that uh, we think about currency and the way that currency is utilized across society and money is utilized across society. Nobody would be quicker to condemn the failings of the current system than, than I would. There are a lot of very profound inequities and shortcomings in uh, the way that our uh, existing structures operate. The flip side of that, and we need to be very mindful, is that we are coming from a status quo that has created more prosperity and more peace for more people than any system that has ever been created in human history. So as much as we want to and should complain about the failings of the status quo, it's actually done a lot of good for billions and billions of people around the planet. And what that means is that if you're going to replace the status quo, you better be very thoughtful and deliberate in how you go about doing that. You need to be very conscious of the unintended consequences of your actions, because whatever the, again, multitude of shortcomings of the system that uh, we have right now, it was at least very thoughtfully designed by, by a lot of smart guys, and sadly, it was almost all guys. Uh, who came up with what their best guess was a framework that could maintain global peace, security, and, and prosperity. And it more or less has done that for an extended period of time. Now, is that blueprint due for profound uh, revision? Absolutely. Should we be far more inclusive 
and thoughtful uh, in, in how we go about designing what comes next? Absolutely. But we need to recognize that we must exceed a very high bar in the, the structures that are going to be created as successors to the institutions that they replace. Bruno, your thoughts on that? I'm intrigued as well, clearly by a whole bunch of metrics. What Tamika said about this phase of human history is very true. And, and certainly longevity, uh, infant mortality, you name it, all, all these numbers are, yes. are really, really important. But we're coming out of a global pandemic. We've got inequality at a level, uh, certainly in the Western world, that we haven't seen before. And there's a whole lot of other metrics about just happiness itself that would suggest that people aren't as happy. You know, and, and so some of those objective measurements just may not matter. I suppose I would put to you as like, how important are those factors in dictating where things are going? Will human beings be able to respond to their wants and desires in an effective enough way to change the system? In which way will that go? Well, I, I think I agree with Micah that, you know, the issue for me is not so much that the previous system was corrupt from one end to the other. Uh, I, don't, I don't think that. And I also don't think that the new system that is arising is going to solve every problem. I think the narrative is going to be similar to the internet. People at the beginning think it's a brave new world with none of the problem from the previous one. And now we find that so naive when we read those articles from, uh, from 1995 and, and, and even 2000, uh, or what Facebook was supposed to become and so on. Uh, so I don't think that kind of millenarian uh, narrative makes much sense. Uh, but I believe very firmly that if you look at traditional finance, that, and if you know a little bit about it, uh, what you realize is not so much that, is, that it is thoroughly corrupt, but that it, it looks primitive. It starts to look primitive. Once you started to use smart contracts, the whole traditional finance looks like you know, something from the Stone Age. There's a guy in the bank that is asking you uh, questions about your life and trying to determine your credit risk, or, or you, know, you have to sort of have a, have a mortgage on your house when you're trying to get a loan, what does the house have to do with that? Um, and, you know, and so on and so forth. The mechanisms are extremely primitive. And it's not a coincidence that, you know, clearings take 48 hours. Someone eventually have to tick, has to tick it off. Someone has to be responsible. Why in an age of hyper-automation, why in an age we're thinking about self-driving cars, does our finance still work like this? Where eventually there's a guy in a desk, uh, uh, signing off on stuff. Um, so I think, you know, the appeal of, of crypto is very much, I think the Ethereum realized that from the very beginning is this appeal of hyper-automation, making everything effective. You know, I sold an NFT a few months ago and as I was sort of selling it and, and getting my Ethereum, my wife asked, shouldn't they send your money before you send your NFT? And, you know, I have to tell her, it doesn't quite work like that anymore. You know, that's the old world. But yeah, the old world is a world where you pay half the final amount in advance and then the guy does the service and then you pay the other half and you try to find some kind of primitive mechanism to establish trust. And with crypto, trust is engineered from the bottom up uh, in an efficient manner. Uh, and I think that's just inevitable. So in that sense, we will move to that world one way or another. Now, the question is why it's going to be bumpy whether there's going to be a thing to this, whether some of this is going to be brought about by states, which takes us to the uh, central bank digital currencies issue, which I think is problematic, or some other solution. 
purely revolutionary solution that many people dream about. Uh, the scenario where the dollar just collapses and a completely new world is built on the ruins of the dollar. That's another narrative that I find impossible. So we still don't know how it's going to happen, but I personally have very few doubts that, that it will happen. You know, it's, it's interesting. There's so many just even subtle ways, right, that TradFi and markets, you know, when markets open and markets close, right? Like there's this kind of seen right. as from a quaint in the crypto ecosystem idea that a market could close and you can't affect That's it. Right. Like, what is that, right? As opposed to crypto markets, which are 24-7, 365, you, whatever you want to do from your pajamas here, there, two in the morning, you kind of make your choice. And that leads to a much more level playing field globally, because certainly to your point, Bruno, I think some of the gatekeeping that happens, we know that there's been traditional redlining, you know, systematic discrimination against countries, uh, people, you know, discrimination based on all kinds of different characteristics. To your point of like the guy at the bank who's able to say, yes, you get a loan or not, or just the sheer idea that you have to create credit history versus something maybe a little bit more realistic, like a payments history, being able to kind of meet demand for payment, you know, at, at the time that that demand is met and using that as kind of a, a lever or measure for your credit worthiness. So all of these kinds of things that we take for granted in our systems uh, were developed, you know, very deliberately, and they were developed in ways that are deeply exclusionary. Something we talked about on the show quite a bit. A very quick example, you know, the insurance industry and how it doesn't reach many parts of the world. You know, in Ethiopia, if people want to insure against rock, what do they do? The local insurance companies are not capitalized enough. Uh, the Western companies don't go there. And apparently we're happy with this. And, you know, crypto would solve the problem overnight. Uh, so obviously there's, there's something here. And we might as well accept it rather than resist it uh, because the inequities and the inefficiencies of the previous system are obvious to everyone who knows anything about it. So here's something else I find really interesting, because it's certainly been the case over the course of the last decade that a lot of innovation experimentation has happened in smaller economies, more, I would argue, more innovative economies, right? You've seen where have, to your point about CBDCs, where have the experiments really been happening? Well, there's certainly digital yuan in China. Uh, there are other projects that may or may not be blockchain-backed, and leaving that aside, or may not even be M0, but certainly are experiments by a central bank with digital money in new ways. Those aren't really necessarily happening until very recently in some of the, the giant economies. And yet, you know, there is almost this, there's been this denial on the part of some of these very powerful government institutions that this is a change that's coming in part because it's been possible to ignore it because of the structures we put into place. So Mike, I'd love to get your thoughts on just that divide, the divide between this really rapidly moving, you know, we had an episode on Nigeria recently, which is one of the fintech capitals of the world, which is something that's not really necessarily known by a lot of people that which for reasons that I think are probably racist, but really very confusing to me. There are a lot of these places where innovation is just thriving and happening very quickly uh, that are a little off the beaten path of our ordinary G7 types of powers. So what, what do you make of that? Well, I think the denialism is real, uh, firstly. And I was keynoting a conference a little while back before the pandemic began that was uh, pale, stale, and male. And it was dominated by uh, Swiss bankers and a whole lot of Swiss bankers. And they could not bring themselves to accept that any change in their business model was likely in the foreseeable future, because frankly, the status quo was working pretty well for them. If you go down to Nigeria, to take your example, Sheila, and look at the cash houses that are common in Nigeria as a, a mechanism for completing transactions, incredibly inefficient, incredibly dangerous for everyone involved, and ripe for disruption and innovation, 
Of course, you're going to get good ideas bubbling to the surface there, because frankly, the needs are, are even more acute uh, than they are in the global north, and the needs are pretty acute in the global north. So I think, frankly, there is a huge opportunity for countries in the global south and economies in the global south to leapfrog incumbents in the same way that you saw many of these companies go straight to mobile and skip landlines. They, because they are not burdened with legacy systems, are, are going to be able to very rapidly roll out state-of-the-art platforms, and hopefully that will provide some significant advantages uh, as they seek to bring greater efficiency uh, to economies that uh, have historically been on the margins of the, the global international financial system. I think we see already bankers and others in the United States waking up to some of the innovation that is occurring beyond our borders, and it's serving as a very useful catalyst for changes that are long overdue, uh, economies that have been too stagnant too long. So Bruno, I, I want to go to China, which is something that you've written extensively about, and just try to think about where its role is in, in how this all plays out. You know, I think just a sort of stage set here, for so long people have talked about China certainly in the United States, as if it can only imitate, that it is not an innovator unto itself, it just copies. And I think that was always patently wrong, but I think it's become even more so patently wrong if there's any way to sort of extend it, that idea to this current moment, because I see the innovation happening around what I would call social technology, in the idea that China is forming new structures of how they go about arranging commerce and society, and they're using technologies to do it. The way that they use e-commerce and social media and WePay and Alipay and these things is really quite innovative unto itself, regardless of the underlying tech. It's about the innovation of, of social commerce. And I think that is a major threat in terms of the competitive power uh, that China can bring to bear by using some of these technologies to bring greater efficiency, just even domestically. It's not even a question about what it does with the Belt and Road, which is another question altogether. But just by embracing some of these data-driven aspects of these new technologies to form more effective social systems, that to me is going to be a major challenge to the US and to the Western model for that matter. I'm wondering whether, first of all, whether you share that view, whether you see China as a, a real challenger. But secondly, you just said something about that, you know, CBDCs are problematic. And of course, one aspect of this Chinese innovation drive in the world of money is that it is in the process of launching its digital yuan. Is that going to be a, an asset to it in this process, or does it become a burden if people don't want it? What's your take on how all that comes together? Well, I think Chinese authorities are still thinking through the idea. They are thinking about it in a more innovative state of mind than, than central banks in, in the US or Europe. Uh, we basically think about central bank digital currencies as potentially a tool to reduce inefficiencies on, at the margin, but not more than that. China is really thinking about the way they can change monetary policy, but also the way they can change foreign policy. I think that's where there are potentially some troubling areas. You know, imagine sanctions against a Western company, a Western company that somehow upsets Chinese authorities. happened recently with, with a number of, of Western companies' statements on Xinjiang or on Tibet. It wouldn't be possible with a central bank digital currency to actually not only to stop their access to the currency and therefore render their business completely inoperative in China, but potentially more imaginative and sci-fi scenarios where you could throttle the access. Uh, so they would still be in business, but it would be slower 
uh, their payments would be slower. They would have to tell their customers that uh, today we cannot process any more payments, come back tomorrow. So what do you do with the internet potentially to inconvenient uh, hosts? You could do also using ACB uh, DC. Uh, so I think there's enormous potential here for good and bad with these currencies. And it's being better perceived in China, I think, than elsewhere. Obviously, the incumbent here has the traditional problem that it doesn't feel the same pressure to change. China is also unhappy with the Western model of of central banking. It's unhappy with quantitative easing and uh, never really embraced it. Uh, and there's a debate rather intense in China whether China should finally embrace it or look for other solutions. And the other solutions would rely on a much more tra- targeted precision monetary policy that would be go directly to the consumer and not rely so much on the intermediary, the banking intermediary. I suspect this is going to be easier to do in China because banks are state-owned. And so they follow the directives of the party. In Europe and the United States, banks are very powerful. And we've already seen how they pushed back against these currencies, uh, which is one reason they have been watered down. Because central bank digital currencies are essentially about removing the bank intermediation. And that uh, is, of course, a rival project to crypto, which is after the same thing. The difference is that well, crypto, it goes down from banks to the people, let us say, you know, in quotes. Uh, this is sometimes a bit naive, but there's something to it. And with, with central bank digital currencies, it goes up from, from the banking sector to, uh, to the state, to the central bank and the control of political authorities in the end. So, Tamika, picking up on that rather disturbing scenario that Bruno gave us of, of an all-powerful state that's able to really influence using its currency as a mechanism for controlling and sanctioning and throttling other outside foreign companies' activities, does that at the same time, on the flip side, create an opportunity for either governments or companies or decentralized communities who are offering up a, an open model, something that really is m- much more accessible? How does that fit in? How does, say, the negative scenario that we just heard play out in terms of competition when presumably we're moving into a world where there will be more options for people around the world? Well, there are a couple of things we're going to have to keep in mind as, as we try to solve for this. What we have seen historically is that in the 20th century, every great innovation needed to be paired with investment in infrastructure and regulation before we were able to realize its full potential. What do I mean by that? If you look at aviation or automobiles, we had a flurry of innovation around aviation and automobiles. But it was only a couple of decades later when we did the hard work to build out airports all over the world and an international regulatory architecture that gave people confidence that they would be safe if they stepped onto an aircraft that we really saw the potential of that technology realized. Uh, The same is true with automobiles and auto safety and, and highways. Right now, we are seeing a flurry of investment and a flurry of activity around uh, crypto. What we will need over the next few decades is to create the infrastructure and the regulatory frameworks that will enable us to take advantage of that dynamism in a way that will bring the benefits to all of society. What could that look like? Theoretically, I think we're starting to see some intriguing examples. The danger Bruno speaks about uh, with CBDCs is very real. And there is a risk in my mind that the United States could, to, to use the words of uh, you know, Dante Desparte, out China, China, uh, if it goes all in on CBDCs. 
There is another alternative to that uh, in which we're able to combine best of breed emerging technologies, federated learning, homomorphic encryption, differential privacy, and create a framework that allows us to harness data very effectively. So we would be able to utilize the information created by transactions as efficiently as, as any nation in the world, but do so in a way that is very conscientious of human rights and privacy. That, in my mind, should be our goal. That's an ambitious target, but we like ambitious targets. Uh, and it's something that would allow us to benefit from the surge of open innovation that needs to occur in this ecosystem, while still hopefully protecting the values uh, that should be the bedrock of everything we do. So on that last point, Tumaika, what does this all mean for democracy? I know that you oversaw a body called the Community of Democracies, and so it's something you spent quite a bit of time thinking about. Does a new decentralized model, what does that lead to? Is it, is it the liquid democracy models? Is it quadratic voting? There's all these different things that have come up at the intersection of decentralization and the democratic process or democratic systems. What is your take? Well, in my mind, the countries that win in the 21st century in the same way the United States succeeded in the 20th century will succeed in combining a few big systems. We'll need really responsible, thoughtful systems for managing digital identity and establishing trust. We'll need very thoughtful, responsible systems for managing data. I just spoke a, a bit about what that might entail. We'll need really creative, efficient mechanisms for managing payments. Uh, and certainly blockchain-enabled solutions are likely to be at the, the core of that. And then we'll need a host of government functions that plug into those base layers of infrastructure, uh, those three foundational systems. If we get that right, my hope is that we could end up far more responsive institutions than we have right now. If you look around the world at many of the leading democracies, you'll find institutions that were designed in the 19th century using technology from the 20th century trying to solve the problems of the 21st century. And that is not working out so well for anyone. My hope and expectation would be that if you can combine some of these systems with new mechanisms for representation and public accountability, we will get much better at translating the aspirations of citizens into outcomes produced by governments. And ultimately, that is what a democracy should do. If we're talking at, at the most basic level, a democracy is designed to translate what citizens want into policy outputs by government. We have a new set of tools that should allow us to do that far more effectively than we've been able to do it in the past. Whether or not we're able to put those uh, tools to work effectively uh, is a, a story that we're still waiting to learn the end of. That movie hasn't concluded yet. Bruno, what are your thoughts on that theme of democracy? As Tamika just said, I think this is just the beginning. We're going to be taken by surprise by future developments. This is not even like the internet, where at the beginning you could guess the fundamental structure. I think as we create an internet that goes much beyond information into money, into the real world, we're going to be surprised. I am relatively unexcited by this discussion about governance of the blockchain, of different tokens, about quadratic voting and so on, because I just think what crypto needs right now is to move beyond computer engineering into the real world. And the real challenge is to connect to societies, to the physical world, and not to remain within the limits of the blockchain, coming up with more and more ingenious solutions. 
you know, the fundamental problem of the blockchain is that it doesn't connect to the world outside. It's a computer not connected to the internet. The blockchain doesn't even know what time it is. And so the problem that has to be solved in the next uh, few years is how to connect the blockchain to the real world, how to have a way for information from the outside world, including the internet, to, to be transmitted to the blockchain. That's a fascinating problem where the issue becomes rather social and political and where computer science is no longer enough. You're going to need a lot of economics and a lot of social science, a lot of political science, a lot of geopolitics too, as we talked in this episode. And so I always tend to resist this idea that better code is going to solve the problem because I think we now reach the point where we need to have a different approach to the crypto problem. Well, if I could summarize this broad-ranging, far-reaching, and really fascinating discussion, you know, it all comes down to something I think we hint at or talk about directly sometimes on this show, which is placing crypto, placing money in context and recognizing that while the traditional media tendency is to kind of focus on how much money who is making and which celebrity is entering the space of crypto and investing and you know, what and, and what is dominating the price index, really, there is a much broader context and all that's happening right in front of our eyes if we're just paying attention to it. So the implications for a global power, the implications for political power, for soft power, the implications for incumbents, both in the financial sector and the political sphere are really important. And to kind of what I said at the top of the hour, thinking through this new world order that is, that is slowly emerging. And if we give that enough room to breathe, we're going to see, I think, to our wonderful guest, Micah Tillman and Bruno Mastai, uh, to the points that you've raised about like, we need to do that. We need to be fostering the benefits of the system, recognizing innovation where it's happening, and also just kind of staying tuned and keeping our eyes peeled because it's impossible to predict exactly where this will all go, but we know it's going to go somewhere pretty dramatic and pretty exciting. So with that, uh, thank you so much again to our guests. Of course, as always, my co-host, Michael Casey. And tune in next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Dr. Tamika Tillman, and Bruna Masai. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musso, produced and announced by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, Thanks for listening. We are witnessing the greatest paradigm shift in finance in modern history. Join thousands of newsmakers and influencers talking the future of money at Consensus by Coindesk, a live virtual experience of leaders, change makers, virtual reality meetups, keynotes from Ray Dalio, Gary Vaynerchuk, and much more. Get an up-close look at the boom in crypto, the surge of institutional investment in Bitcoin, the NFT mania, the breakneck innovation in decentralized finance and the coming disruption from central bank digital currencies. Coindesk Reports listeners can visit events.coindesk.com and use the promo code REPORTS to save $25. Join us May 24th through the 27th for Consensus by Coindesk. Register today at events.coindesk.com. We'll see you there.